0: And Welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Khan. Thank you very much for listening as always. In the last episode, we introduced Flavius Claudius Julianus, the man who would become known to history as Julian the Apostate. Nephew to Emperor Constantine I, Julian was orphaned at a very young age when most of his immediate family, including his father and eldest brother, were massacred by Constantine's son, Constantius, in order to secure power. Having been convinced to spare Julian and his brother Gallus on account of their young age, Constantius sent the boys off to live under house arrest in a palace in the Anatolian countryside. They lived in such a state until the year 351 when Emperor Constantius promoted Gallus to the rank of Caesar, or junior co-emperor. Gallus was to serve as the representative of imperial authority in the eastern half of the empire, while Constantius worked to put down a rebellion in the western half. Meanwhile, Julian was freed to, for basically the first time in his adult life, to travel wherever he pleased. He chose to study rhetoric and philosophy under some of the Empire's most prestigious scholars, which he was able to do for only three years because, in 353, his brother Gallus ran afoul of the Emperor and was executed for treason. Now suspected of treason himself, Julian was summoned before the Imperial Court to plead his case, and he likely would have ended up sharing his brother's fate were it not for the intervention of Constantius's wife, the Empress Eusebia. With her intercession, Julian was spared and was once again freed to continue his studies. However, only three months later, Julian was once again summoned to the imperial court at Mediolanum, modern-day Milan. This time, however, it was not to answer for any crime real or imagined. Rather, it was to be offered the position of Caesar himself, and to be sent off to Gaul. The provinces of Gaul, modern France, had been a bit unstable in recent years. On two separate occasions, Roman army officers stationed in Gaul had attempted to challenge imperial authority and declare themselves as emperor. These rebellions threw the region into internal chaos, chaos which the hostile Germanic tribes of the Alamanni and the Franks sought to take advantage of. They crossed the Rhine River which formed the boundary of the Roman Empire in the west and began to raid Roman settlements basically with impunity. Constantius decided that someone had to be sent to Gaul to reassert imperial authority there and stem the tide of the barbarian invasion. Empress Eusebia managed to convince him that Julian was the right man for this task. And so Constantius resolved to elevate him to the rank of Caesar and to send him to Gaul. Julian was understandably quite distressed upon being given this offer. Becoming Caesar and going to Gaul meant that he had to leave his old scholar's lifestyle behind him and adopt a new lifestyle that was completely alien to him, that of the soldier. All this in order to undertake a task that he thought himself to be incapable of undertaking. Not only that, but Julian had ample reason to not want to carry out the bidding of his cousin Constantius. Not only was he responsible for the murder of his family, but Constantius was a fervent Christian, and Julian was a secret convert to paganism. But reluctant as he may have been, Julian recognized the direness of the situation. It was his duty to do what he could for the empire, and if he were to die carrying out his task, then it would be a death well earned. On November 6th, 355 CE, in a ceremony just outside Mediolanum, Julian was officially elevated to the office of Caesar, Within a month, Julian and his retinue, including his newlywed wife and his 300-strong bodyguard regiment, set out for Gaul. Constantius also accompanied him until they reached Turin, where he saw him off, like, in the words of author Adrian Murdoch, like a parent seeing their child off to university. Julian would have been correct to pick up on Constantius's patriarchal attitude towards him. From the beginning, Constantius had intended for Julian to be more of a figurehead than anything else. He was rightly afraid that if he were left completely to his own devices, that he would either go AWOL, or that he would be able to amass enough power to rebel against him. So Constantius sought to restrain him. To this end, Constantius restricted the number of people in Julian's retinue. He was in constant contact with civil officials and army officers in Gaul, who loyally reported on Julian's every action. As if this was not enough, the Emperor also issued to Julian explicit written instructions on how he was to conduct himself. Upon arriving in Gaul, Julian would have discovered that he hardly had any authority whatsoever. Any decisions of any real significance were made by the generals and bureaucrats who were already in charge there, all of whom were lackeys of Constantius. Now, Julian could have opted to just bear it. He could have simply done what Constantius wanted him to do, which amounted to little more than simply being present. He could have stayed in his headquarters all day, still buried in his books, and let others do all the work for him. But this was not in his character. He wanted to take charge himself. He took inspiration from a past Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, and sought to become a stoic philosopher king in his vein. Firstly, he adopted the lifestyle of his soldiers. He put himself through the basic training of the Roman legionary, which was infamously rigorous. For the first month of the four-month training course, the recruits never so much as saw a weapon, let alone trained with one. They spent their time learning to march in formation and building their strength. A recruit was not allowed to progress until he was able to march 20 miles in five hours while carrying 40 pounds of equipment. Once they were allowed to use weapons, training took on the same intensity as real combat, to the point where the late Roman author Vegetus wrote that their battles were merely bloody exercises. Julian also eschewed all the comforts of the Roman aristocracy. When he said that he would live amongst his soldiers, he really meant it. He slept as they did on cots with rough woolen blankets. He ate their simple food and rejected wine in favor of beer. When he was not training physically, he was training mentally. His wife Helena had given him, as a wedding gift, a number of books pertaining to military strategy, including a copy of Julius Caesar's Commentary on the Gallic Wars, a book that could not have been more appropriate for the situation that Julian now found himself in. Julian even undertook to learn Latin to better communicate with his troops. A quick note, Julian's native language was Greek, which was the official language of the eastern portion of the Roman Empire, hence why he did not, up until this point, understand Latin. In June 356, after having spent about a year and a half in Gaul, Julian decided that he was ready to undertake his first military campaign on his own, to turn theory into practice. Back when Julian was first setting up from Mediolanum, he received word that Colonia Agrippina, modern-day Cologne, had fallen to Frankish raiders, Founded back during the era of Augustus Caesar, Colonia Agrippina occupied a strategic location along the Rhine River, and it was an important base of operations for the Roman military stationed along the frontier. Its loss could simply not be allowed to stand. Colonia Agrippina was only the first in a number of cities that had fallen to Germanic tribes during this period. Most recently, it was the city of Augusta Nodunum that had been placed under siege by a force of Alamanni. Julian's work was essentially cut out for him. He took personal command of about 1,500 troops, and in late June, he reoccupied the city of Augusta Dunum. This he was able to do with relatively little difficulty. For as much as the Germanic warbands loved to pick fights with the Roman soldiers, they generally tended to avoid occupying Roman cities directly, preferring instead to lie in wait in the countryside. Oftentimes, retaking towns that had been captured by the barbarians amounted to little more than simply walking through the front gates. Eager to prove himself in battle... Julian wasted no time before decamping the city, heading north towards Cologne. Wanting to travel fast and light, Julian took only his cavalry and archers with him for the first leg of this journey. This was rather risky. The route that he took was heavily forested, and there was the constant risk of ambush by Germanic warbands. Regardless, Julian pushed north, winning skirmishes, reoccupying towns, and moreover, building a rapport with the men under his command, and gaining confidence in himself as a commander. By September, Julian had reoccupied Colonia Agrippina. He was dismayed at the sight of the town. Having heard the stories of its former glory, Julian had found the place in ruins. He spent the final months of the year 356 overseeing the city's reconstruction. When this task was accomplished to his satisfaction, Julian traveled southwest to the city of Senones, modern Seine, intending to pass the winter there. Having just concluded a temporary armistice with the Alamanni, Julian expected to spend his time in Sinonis, resting and strategizing for the next year's campaign, but this was not to be. A band of Alamanni warriors had learned that Julian was encamped at the city, with a relatively small force. He had dispersed a decent amount of his men to garrison the cities that he had retaken over the past year. So this group of Alamanni laid siege to the city. They did not have the technology that would be needed to break through the walls, and Julian did not have enough men to confidently ride out and face the attackers head-on. Someone who did have the manpower for such an offensive was Marcellus, the Magister Equitum, or Master of the Cavalry, who was the commander-in-chief of all the Roman forces in Gaul, and moreover, was a direct appointee of Emperor Constantius. Marcellus was wintering close by with a much larger force, and could very well have come to Julian's aid if he wished. Instead, Marcellus stayed put, leaving Julian and his men to their fate. After having besieged the city for 30 days, however, the Alamanni figured that it simply wasn't worth it anymore and gave up. Marcellus's reason for leaving his compatriot out to dry seems to have been a desire to see him fail, so as to advance his own career. This backfired spectacularly, however, as Constantius had Marcellus stripped of his rank and banished as soon as he learned of what had happened. It seems that Julian's recapture of Colonia Agrippina, as well as the Marcellus affair, led Constantius to place greater trust in his cousin's abilities, he allowed Julian to take Marcellus's former post of commander-in-chief, while the soldiers formerly under Marcellus's direct leadership were now to be led by a man named Barbatio. As it would turn out, Barbatio would do no better in this role than his predecessor. In the summer of 357, the Romans went back on the offensive to drive the last of the barbarians back across the Rhine River. Barbatio's army, which was stationed in modern-day Switzerland, was to strike north while Julian's army was to strike east, in one big pincer movement. On a campaign like this, constant cooperation between the two commanders would have been essential. Barbatio, however, had it out for Julian. He was an old enemy of his brother Gallus, and it was he who had carried out his arrest and execution. He hated Julian simply by extension, and refused to cooperate with him. He was also fairly incompetent as a military leader, and it was this combination of incompetence and intransigence That led to the failure of the campaign. Barbatio got bogged down fighting the Alamanni somewhere in southern Germany, which allowed for a raiding party to slip through Roman lines and sack the city of Lugdunum, modern-day Lyon. They fled the scene before Julian could respond adequately. He sent two tribunes racing ahead to relay orders to Barbatio to block their escape. Barbatio interpreted this as Julian usurping his authority, and he refused to take action. He stayed put, and the barbarians were allowed to escape. Julian resolved to catch up with the escapees, so, after he learned that they were camping out on an island in the Rhine River, he asked Barbatio to lend him some pontoon boats that he knew that he had in his possession so that they could cross the river. Barbatio responded by having the boats burned, but Julian would not be discouraged so easily. He learned of a place where the river was relatively calm. There, he had a unit of his most elite troops cross the river by using their shields as canoes. They took the Alamanni completely by surprise. They fell upon them and, in the words of Marcelinus, quote, slaughtered them like so many sheep, end quote. They returned to camp with a bunch of loot, including some boats that they had found. Meanwhile, Barbatio continued to commit acts of obstruction and defiance that had the effect, whether intended or not, of sabotaging the campaign. This culminated in Barbatio's attempt to cross the Rhine himself without any support from Julian. This ended in disaster as his force was routed, Barbatio started running and did not stop until he had reached the imperial capital at Mediolanum, where he tried to place the blame on Julian for the campaign's ultimate failure. Barbatio's defeat had left Julian out to hang. He was all alone in the field, with only about 13,000 men. Smelling blood in the water, seven disparate Germanic tribes joined forces to defeat Julian's army once and for all. The leader of this coalition was the Alemannic King Chondomarius, Amanius Marcellinus describes Chundamar as being unduly proud. He had carried out successful raids on the cities of Gaul for many years, but had encountered no real resistance. It was he who had routed the army of Barbatio, but he was a completely incompetent leader, or, if you choose to believe some historians' interpretations, actively working to undermine the campaign. Itching for a fight, Chundamar mustered his army on the outskirts of Argentoratum modern-day Strasbourg in France. He sought to provoke a fight by issuing Julian an ultimatum compelling him to evacuate the territory or else. An ultimatum that he knew would prove unacceptable. The exact date of the ensuing Battle of Argentorantum has been lost to history. It has been surmised that it occurred in August of 357. The combined forces of the Alemannic Coalition numbered around 30,000, outnumbering the Romans by 2 to 1. But despite this, Julian insisted on obliging Chundamarius of his desire for a battle. He had done the math in his head and reasoned that it was much better to engage the entire Alemannic force while it was still united, rather than to be outmaneuvered by its seven-component armies. So Julian went on the offensive immediately. After enduring a five-hour march, the Romans found themselves atop a hill overlooking the barbarian encampment. Julian wanted to give his men time to rest, but the men were anxious to get on with it. Ever the expert rhetorician, Julian gave a short speech to his men before they entered the battle. The text of the speech has, unfortunately, been lost to us, but Marcellinus wrote that he had hardly been able to finish speaking before the men noisily interjected by banging their spears on their shields and gnashing their teeth. The signal was given, and the two armies threw themselves at each other with everything they had. But although the Alamanni fell upon the Romans in such numbers, the Roman line would not break. Alamanni may have had numbers on their side, but the Romans had training and discipline. More decisively, they had the inspiration of their fearless commander. Julian flung himself into the battle personally, the ultimate demonstration of solidarity with his soldiers. Not only did he live like them, but he was willing to die like them, too. As the Alemanni failed to achieve the decisive breakthrough they were expecting, the intertribal tensions among the Coalition's forces began to come to the surface, and their ranks began to waver. Chundamar tried to rally them for one final push. This failed, and the Alemanni broke ranks and made a run for it. 2,000 of them died trying to cross the Rhine, either having been drowned or shot down by Roman arrows. Another 6,000 Alemannic warriors lay dead on the field of battle. In contrast, Roman losses are said to have amounted to 250. Adding to the triumph of the Roman victory, Chundamar himself was apprehended while trying to escape, and Julian had him sent as a gift to the emperor in Mediolanum. For his leadership at the Battle of Argentaratum, Julian has gone down in history as one of Rome's great tacticians, but he would not be content only with this victory. He wanted to make the barbarians suffer for their insolence. In the weeks following his victory, Julian and his army crossed the Rhine. They were entering uncharted territory. Very few Romans had dared to travel here since the traumatic defeat of the three Roman legions at the Teutoburg Forest back in the year 9. But Julian was more cautious of a commander than Varus, the man who had presided over the defeat at Teutoburg. Julian's army penetrated deep into what is now the southern German state of Baden-Württemberg. Along the way, they captured prisoners and raised farms to the ground. Seeking to prevent the total devastation of their lands, the six kings who had previously fought alongside at Argentorandum, sought a truce with Julian. To them, he granted a truce of ten months. Three of the kings even went so far as to swear an ironclad oath to Rome, pledging to fight on the emperor's behalf. Julian would have pushed northward to fight against the Franks, but his men were beginning to grumble. Winter was quickly approaching, and they were far from civilization. Julian made the decision to withdraw back across the Rhine. While en route, the army's vanguard ran into a sizable force of Frankish warriors. The Franks turned tail and shut themselves in a fort on the right bank of the river. It was too risky to simply let them be, but it was equally as risky to attempt a direct assault on the fort. So Julian laid a siege. The Franks held out for a surprisingly long time, however, and it wasn't until 40 days into the siege that the Romans discovered the reason why. The defenders were slipping out of the fort at night, over the frozen river. Ingeniously, Julian ordered his men to paddle canoes up and down the river all night to prevent the ice from forming. With no real way to resupply themselves, the defenders were quickly starved out. They surrendered, and Julian sent all the captives on to his cousin Constantius. Julian establishes winter quarters in the city of Lutetia, which has since become known as Paris. With the hardest of the military struggles behind him, Julian decided to involve himself more in civil administration. With his close friend and advisor Seleucius Secundus by his side, Julian oversaw the reconstruction of the province of Gaul. He genuinely hoped that he could garner popular support for Roman rule, so when the praetorian prefect of Gaul, a man named Florentius, proposed a particularly onerous tax, Julian tried to oppose him. As the Praetorian prefect, Florentius was technically the chief civil administrator in Gaul. Nominally, Julian did not have any authority over such matters. Moreover, Florentius was a direct appointee of Emperor Constantius. Opposing him was opposing the will of the emperor. And while Constantius ultimately sided with Julian, that was not the end of it. Julian and Florentius came into conflict again the next year barbarians were raiding the critical Roman supply lines between Gaul and Britannia. This could not be allowed to stand, but Julian and Florentius came up with opposing ways to deal with the problem. Florentius proposed offering the raiders a tribute to leave the ships alone. Julian saw this as cowardly, so he decided to go on the offensive against them once again. He crossed the Rhine River again in the year 358 and brought the Franks to heel after a relatively short and destructive campaign. The conflict over the supply lines gets to the root of the conflict between Julian and Florentius. Julian bristled against Florentius's blatant corruption. When one of Florentius's cronies was put on trial for corruption, Julian was asked to cover for him. He refused. Florentius was enraged. In retaliation, he convinced the emperor to remove Julian's advisor, Salutius from his position. This brings us to the ever-widening chasm between Julian and Constantius. Ever since the Battle of Argentaratum, Julian had been growing increasingly dissatisfied with the dynamics of their relationship. As he would later write, quote, At Argentaratum, even though the gods gave into my hands as prisoner of war the king of the enemy, I did not begrudge Constantius the glory of that success. And yet, even though I was not allowed to triumph for it, I had in my power to kill the enemy, and moreover, I could have led him through the whole of Gaul, and exhibited him to the cities, and thus have luxuriated as it were in the misfortunes of Chondemar. I had thought it was my duty to do none of these things, but I sent him at once to Constantius. So when it came about that, although I had done all the fighting, and he had only traveled in those parts which, and held friendly conversations with the tribes who live on the borders of the Danube, it was he, and not I, who held the triumph. End quote. All the while, Constantius looked at Julian's successes with increasing worry. He astutely feared that Julian might become too popular. Immediately after the Battle of Regenteratum, Julian's soldiers had proclaimed him as Augustus. Julian sternly rebuked them, but this incident firmly planted the fear in Constantius's mind. Ironically enough, the action that Constantius took to hopefully dissipate Julian's independent power base would ultimately be what pushed him over the edge into rebellion. In February of 360. A tribune arrived at Julian's headquarters in Lutetia bearing a message from Constantius. It was an order that would reassign almost half of Julian's entire army to the east. This seemed like a perfectly reasonable request. Late last year, war had once again broke out between Rome and Persia. More soldiers were actually needed to reinforce the legions of the east as they faced this threat. And if Constantius could deprive Julian of his base of support while doing it, all the better. He probably underestimated the amount of resistance that this maneuver would garner. Most of Julian's soldiers were natives of Gaul, and they had no desire to leave their homes to go fight and die in a desert thousands of miles away. Marcellinus quotes one soldier as saying, "...we are being driven to the ends of the earth like condemned criminals, while our nearest and dearest whom we have only just freed from captivity will become slaves of the Alamanni once again." Very quickly, Julian was facing a potential riot, Something had to be done to placate the soldiers, lest he end up like Silvanus, the so-called 28-day emperor, who was hacked to death by his own men attempting to claim imperial power for himself. What exactly happened next is a matter of speculation. What historians do know for sure can be best expressed in the words of Edward Gibbon, At the hour of midnight, the impetuous multitude of soldiers with swords, bows, and torches at hand rushed into the suburbs, encompassed the palace, and pronounced the fatal and irrevocable words, Julian Augustus. End quote. What had happened that made the soldiers, whose loyalty Julian was unsure of, suddenly elevate him to the highest position of authority in the empire? Was this a spontaneous development on behalf of the army? Julian would certainly have us believe so. In his account of events, things had taken him completely off guard. Quote, it was already late when suddenly the palace was surrounded, and they all began to shout while I was considering what to do and was by no means confident. I was in my upper room and praying to Zeus, and while the shouting grew louder still, and the palace was all in tumult, I begged him to give me a sign. Zeus showed me a sign and bade me yield and not to oppose the will of the army. Still, I resisted as long as I could and refused to accept the diadem of emperor. But I could not control so many men single handedly, and the gods who had willed this to happen spurred on the soldiers and gradually softened my resolve. At one point, some soldier or other gave me the torque and I placed it atop my head. Afterward, I returned to the palace, groaning in my heart. It was my duty to feel confident and trust in Zeus after he had given me the sign, but I was terribly ashamed, and sank into the earth at the thought of not obeying my emperor faithfully to the last. Julian's melodramatic retelling of events was likely a fabrication written after the fact to justify his ascent to power but analyzing the situation closely, it seems highly unlikely that this event was nearly as spontaneous as he made it seem. The soldier's motivation for declaring Julian Augustus would have been premised on the notion that he would disobey Constantius's orders and not have them redeployed. But this was a very risky gamble to make, especially considering that leading up to this point, Julian had made no indication that he intended to do such a thing. In fact, there was no outward sign that his relationship with Constantius was anything less than cordial. Back immediately following the Battle of Vergenteratum, a number of his soldiers, elated with their victory, attempted to declare Julian Augustus right there on the battlefield, and he publicly and harshly rebuked them, punishing the offending party by making them walk across the camp wearing women's clothing. What is more likely is that this series of events was orchestrated by Julian himself. His motives for doing so would be twofold. One, he could claim that the honor and glory he felt was being denied to him by his senior partner Constantius. Two, By claiming authority and countermanding Constantius' orders to redeploy his soldiers, he could hang on to his loyal base of support and avoid ending up on the wrong side of a lynch mob. Given the popularity he enjoyed among his soldiers up until this point, he had to have believed that they would support him if he made such a move. The biggest risk, of course, was an open conflict with Constantius. But, as evidenced by his later actions, Julian believed that a power-sharing arrangement could have been worked out between the two senior emperors, as had been done before. With all this in mind, when Julian saw the way the wind was blowing in that evening, Marcelinus reports that he invited all of his senior advisors to a banquet. There, they hashed out their plan. Julian asked his senior officers to incite their ranks to declare him emperor, to give the illusion of spontaneity. In exchange, Marcellinus cryptically wrote that Julian granted them all that it was in his power to give. So Julian's initial refusal of the imperial diadem was basically a charade, and any internal conflict he felt at betraying his emperor and cousin, he could justify by claiming that his hand had been forced. The die was cast, to borrow a phrase from Julius Caesar. How Julian came to be declared Augustus was immaterial. He now had to deal with the reality of the situation regardless and confront Constantius head-on, lest everything crumble to pieces before him. And that is where I think we will end things for today. Tune in again next time to watch as Julian has one final climactic showdown with the man who murdered his family and imprisoned him for years, as he attempts to wage a second war against the seemingly unstoppable tide of Christendom. If, in the meantime, you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can always reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which will be in this episode's description. If you like the show and would like to help support it, you can do so either by becoming a supporter on Patreon, or by purchasing some used books for me on eBay. You can also support the show by leaving a review of the podcast on your podcast listening platform of choice. Anyway, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.